Being a parent makes you face stressful situations that re- require you to step up your game. Having two kids with different temper tantrums at the same time in the middle of a grocery shop, for example, or, or having to change a diaper full of poop in the last moment, knowing that you might miss your boss because of it. But nothing, nothing really prepared me for being a parent when rockets were being fired towards my city. But it happened recently, so today, what have I learned while parenting under fire? Stay tuned. You're listening to the Apparently Parent Podcast, where we combine the art of parenting with the science of psychology. I'm Iran Katz, and for over 10 years as a clinical psychologist, I've been helping people from age 6 to 86 live a happier, more flexible life. In the process, I have learned about the things parents do to make or break a childhood, and what turns children into happy, confident human beings. This podcast is for you, the 21st century parent who believes that better parenting can make a better world. So if that's you and you're ready to elevate your parenting journey, let's go! I'm your host, Eran Katz. Alright, welcome back to the Apparently Parent Podcast. It has been a while, ain't it? (laughs) So, yeah, this isn't the episode I thought... I would create when bringing the podcast back from a break, which was, to be honest, longer than I thought I would take. But as we will see in this episode, life has a way to surprise you. So, in case you aren't aware, let me take you back to what happened in the Middle East recently. And it starts on May 9th, 2021. It was a Monday. And here in Israel's capital, Jerusalem, things were really heated. Now, right off the bat, I won't tire you with all the details, which I myself find hard to follow, but it was the national day of celebrating our capital, and it came in the wake of high tensions between the Arab and Jewish populations in Jerusalem. Clashes were really high on that day, and then the leaders of Hamas, which is the political group who's ruling the population of Gaza, They issued an ultimatum saying that if Israel won't move its policing forces from the disputed areas of Jerusalem, they will fire rockets into Israel. And they said, and they did. Now, as I've said, I'm really not going to try and explain the long Israel-Palestine conflict. It's way too long and way too complicated. And I don't even know that I understand everything. And I live here. I have lived here for my entire life. But You know, suffice it to say that, if you are not aware, Gaza is a small strip of land in the south of Israel that is no longer considered part of Israel, and it's highly populated, it's very dense, uh, its population is Palestinian, of course, and it's controlled, internally it's controlled by Hamas, which is a political and religious and also a military organization, and Israel really controls Gaza from the outside, Israel controls all the comings and goings. We, we provide electricity for them. We control if they can get in or out, what kind of products can go in and out, uh, if they can go fishing and all that. Now, you, you may call it a siege. I'm not sure if it's accurate according to what a siege really is, but, you know, it's probably not far from that. And the people of Gaza really have it bad, really, really bad inside and out. And every couple of years, we are all thrown into this high-intensity clash where they fire rockets into Israel, the Israeli army retaliates, and this is what happened. 
As I've said on Monday, and I'm really getting into the parenting stuff really soon. I just want to lay out the, the ground and, and bring you into, into our experience. On Monday, Hamas threatened to fire rockets into Israel if the Israeli police won't leave the contested grounds. And they have delivered on that promise. And they fired rockets into Jerusalem at first. And then, of course, the Israeli army retaliated with airstrikes. And that started an escalation of hostilities in the form of them firing rockets into Israel at different hours of the day, into different areas of Israel. And airplanes of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Army, attacking buildings and targets in Gaza, destroying buildings, killing people, some of them innocent civilians who were caught in the middle. And here, this here in Israel, schools were immediately shut down. I couldn't go to work for more than a week. And we had to be ready at every moment to run into shelter. When the bomb sirens started, it meant that we had 90 seconds to run into a shelter, which we were lucky to have in-house in, my, in, my, in the house that I'm living in. There's a shelter and many buildings here in Israel have bomb shelters, not all of them. And you know, 90 seconds is, is lucky because for those who live closer to Gaza, it means they have 30 seconds or even 15 seconds. And I, I've read a, a paper about the experience of parents living in those areas. And sometimes they have to choose what child they're picking up when running into shelter because they have only 15 seconds, which is kind of crazy. I really don't want to go into who suffers more, us or the Gazan people. I don't think it's relevant because this is a parenting podcast and I want to focus on the experience of being a parent in, in that kind of situation because children and children and parents and parents. And that was our reality for what felt like a month what it was actually 11 nerve-wracking days until a ceasefire was declared and accepted on both ends. Now, I have to admit, it wasn't my first rodeo. It wasn't my first war. Exactly 30 years ago, 1991, the first Gulf War erupted in Iraq. And, you know, Israel wasn't even a side in the war. It was, as far as I remember, the United States and Iraq and Kuwait. But Israel, <laughs> which was seen in, as an ally to the United States, uh, got hit. The Iraqi military fired um, missiles, long-distance missiles, into Israel. And I remember that we, we were afraid that they might have like chemical uh, warheads. So we had to walk. I was 10 years old back then. And we had to walk everywhere with a, a box holding uh, this kind of anti-chemical warfare mask that if you know something happened we have to put those masks on so we protect ourselves from syringas or whatever that was back then and that was my life as a child for like maybe 90 days back then I was in fourth grade but you know I was a kid then and I didn't assume the responsibilities of an adult I had adults to protect me emotionally and physically but now I'm a dad I have a seven years old boy and a three years old girl, and I'm responsible for their safety inside and out, physical safety, emotional safety. So how the hell do you do that when someone is firing rockets at you? And for the folks over in, in Gaza who had children of their own, of course, how do you parent? How do you take care of your children? How do you take care of them emotionally and physically when 
airplanes are, you know, circling above, firing rockets into buildings. So in this episode, I want to share with you some of the musings that I have noticed in myself during those fateful, scary days. And again, I want to acknowledge that my own experience is pretty mild, because in the end, I live in the center of Israel, which means we did have a couple of attacks, plus we had a rocket literally falling really close to my neighborhood, doing a very loud boom, it was really scary, and it killed one man. But some areas in Israel had it worse. My cousin and his family had to spend most of those days in shelter, like almost 24-7. And as I've said, the people of Gaza really suffered many, many losses, including many children who didn't deserve to be in, in that situation. But I think my own personal experience as a parent is something that can be relevant to everybody. To everybody, including you guys, if you, if you listen to me from a place in the world that, you know, you, you don't know of these experiences, you don't have those experiences in your life. And I envy you and I congratulate you for that. And I hope it will be your life forever without those kind of situations. But stress is stress and life throwing curveballs at you is something that happens to everybody in different ways. And I think you can learn from those experiences and, you know, sometimes adopt some ways of thinking or conducting yourself as a parent. And I hope that whenever there's trauma going on, we can at least try and learn something from it and, and grow from it in some way. So, you know, as I've said, life has a way of throwing curveballs at you and you kind of need to be ready to deal with them. Now, I don't mean that you need to be prepared for every crazy scenario you can think of. The day before rockets were firing into Israel, we didn't think, I didn't think about the possibility of it happening. Not at all. I lived my life. So I don't mean I don't mean to suggest that you should start to stockpile on, on canned food or, God forbid, on weapons. But I, I, I do mean that we need to be prepared to deal with what life has prepared for us from a mental and emotional perspective. And it's not about preparing your physical reserve as much as preparing your mental reserves. Because every now and then, life will turn the world upside down on you. It can be, it can be very on a very little scale, such as, you baby having a fever on the morning of an important presentation you have to make at work and you have no one to watch that baby. So, I don't know, maybe you're a single parent and you have no one to take care of the baby and you can't go to work and that's a really important day that you prepared for and that happened, okay? It can also be a super mega major shitstorm, like a war erupting in your country. So, there's <laughs> the scale is really, really wide. And between those two extremes... There's a huge scale of possibilities, and you can't be prepared for everything, but luckily, you don't need to. Suffice it that you prepare yourself for the possibility of a change, the possibility of surprise, the possibility of bad things happening, bad news, and you make yourself more resilient to deal with whatever comes, at least emotionally, at least in your own mind. So what does it mean? For me, it means working on our psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility is a term that originated in what is known in psychology as acceptance and commitment therapy, which is one of my favorite psychological theories and practices. I use it extensively in my own life and with my clients. And it really is the crux of mental well-being because being psychologically flexible means simply 
to be able to deal with whatever is coming up, whatever life brings, whatever is happening, without being thrown into the chaos of your raging mind on one hand or freezing into immobility on the other hand. It's like we're trying to be in, in a continuous flowing river. And sometimes the river goes really fast, sometimes it goes slower and you enjoy it better. Sometimes it's a bit, it's, it's, it can be scary, sometimes it's not. But as, as long as we are in the flow and we're not being thrown into one bank, which can be into chaos, so we're panicking and we don't know what to do, or we're freezing, as long as we're in the flow, we can deal with whatever is coming up. It doesn't mean that we always know what to do. It doesn't mean we always feel happy. It doesn't mean we stop being afraid, but we are not stuck on one emotion and we are not stuck on, on despair. We are in a flow. Now, of course, that's not a black or white kind of thing. And it's not like you're either psychologically flexible or you, you don't. There's a range here. And as long as you work on keeping those mental muscles flexible, you're gonna do better. Will you be afraid, stressed, angry, worried, or confused? Of course you will. Will you be able to be those things while maintaining a good measure of stamina to function and be a source of confidence and support to your loved ones, especially your children, most probably? And I guess that's good enough, ain't it? So what contributes to psychological flexibility. So what contributes to psychological flexibility? This is too big of a topic <laughs> for this one episode, but for the sake of this situation we were thrown into lately, I'm thinking mainly about acceptance and what we can call mindful presence. Shit happens, and when you can't change reality, and let's face it, the average civilian in Israel or the average civilian in Gaza couldn't change the reality we were thrown into. Okay, We could protest, that's about that. They even can't vote the Hamas down. Okay, We can try to vote our government down. And we're really having a really hard time doing so in the last couple of years. So we can't really change the situation as it is. But we can try to accept it for what it is. And that, my friend, is really not easy. I have come to real realize that this is a lifelong practice of finding the balance between wanting to change reality and accepting reality. Because the thing is that you cannot really succumb to, to just acceptance, to just a radical acceptance of whatever is going on. You can't just say it is what it is and that's that. Because that's a recipe for neglect or this depression or nihilism. Depends where you take it. But you know, you can... Also, you can't also focus on how horrible and unfair everything is because that's a recipe for, for, for anxiety and despair. And the same is true for parenting at large. We are always trying to strike a balance between accepting our children for what they are, the magnificent human beings they can be, and wanting to move them forward, right? So in those 11 days of tension and fear, I couldn't help but, but trying to accept the reality of the matter doing whatever I can to protect us in, in that reality, while always being very mindful of how I was feeling, what I was thinking, what was going on in my mind, and also how my family was feeling. Because that is something that I can affect. I can change exactly everything about my feelings or my thoughts, but I can choose where to focus on. So I chose not to watch the news I was updated on what was going on. 
but I chose not to watch news, not to expose my children to frightening news. I chose not to go into online debates and, and arguments. I chose to listen to more music than usual. I hardly didn't listen to podcasts in that week because I, I couldn't concentrate on anything. I even chose not, chose not to work as much as I usually do. Some of my clients didn't want to meet anyway because they were afraid to go outside. But I had to choose and, and see where I can have a better control on where I was focusing my mind on. And that really helped me center my feelings. And, and that really helped me be there for my children. And that's where I could do something to help. For example, I could choose to, to be mindful of how my son was feeling because he was really afraid when it all started. I had to accept that. Him being really stressed and afraid kind of stressed me out as well because I'm as much as New York as he is. However, I, I couldn't let myself just be afraid. And I, couldn't, I wouldn't let myself you know, tell him to just stop being afraid. I, I know as, as a dad that it, it won't help as a dad and as a shrink, I know that doesn't help. So I had to accept him for the fear that he was having. I had to accept my fear, but I was also being very mindfully present with what I was thinking and feeling and finding the ways to let the emotion flow and go so I could help my child in that situation. And I gotta say that those moments really helped me to see the value of the parenting map, which is my method for becoming what I call the 21st century parent, which means a more present, more confident, more caring parent. And if you have listened to the, to the podcast before, you know the parenting map is structured around three pillars, which are mind, attachment, and purpose. And there, I came to realize that there's a guiding light in in those pillars for moments of stress. For example, my purpose, one of my values as a father is to always try to make my kids feel not 100% safe and secure with me, but 200% safe and secure with me. I want, well, I want them to feel as safe physically and emotionally as possible. So in those moments of fear, when I'm scared as I'm grabbing my child and my wife is grabbing our dog and my son is running down the, the stairs to the shelter, my mind is also on how I want them to remember those moments. It's not only focused on how afraid I am, but also how I want to remember those moments. I, I, I'm sorry, how I want them to remember those moments next week or next year or 30 years from now, as I remember those moments of running into shelter 30 years ago when I was 10 years old. I'm aware of my role as their secure base and safe haven. Those are terms from the attachment theory, which leads me to the second pillar. And of course, I'm working with my mind, which is the first pillar, all the time. I'm noticing what is coming up for me, thoughts, emotions, sensations, trying to go into the mind of my child, both my girl, both my boy, whatever they were feeling, and helping them. So I, I came to see how having this structure of the parenting map was really my guiding light in, in those really stormy days. Now, if you want to learn more about the parenting map and what does it mean and how you can apply it to your own life, yes, even in peaceful days, even if you don't know what rockets are, I have a workshop that can help you with that. So you can just go and check it out on apparentlyparent.com forward slash workshop. Now, what I want to do now is I, I, I want to focus on some specific areas that I 
noticed and I think I have learned about during those days and flesh it out a little bit. So I want to start by talking about how stressful and uncertain situations really lead into a tunnel vision. So for, for the first few days, I really couldn't do anything. I canceled most of my therapy sessions, both for safety reasons, but also because I knew I wouldn't be able to be there for my patients, for my clients, like they need me to. My mind was really focused on being afraid and being worried. I was always listening for a hint of a siren. So normal, everyday sounds that you normally don't really notice made my heart really jump. Because, you know, our brain, our brain has a very important feature in our life. Your brain has a very important apparatus that is always scanning the environment for danger. And during those days, it was on overdrive. I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't study. I couldn't work. And you know what? I came to realize that that's okay. So if you ever find yourself in, in a similar situation, even if it's not a war-like situation, even if you're really stressful because, I don't know, because of COVID, because of something at work, because you're having fights with your spouse and you're thinking of divorce, whatever. If you find yourself in a stressful situation and you notice uncertainty and you notice you're, you're going into this kind of tunnel vision, first of all, cut yourself some slack. Really. As much as possible, you know, cut yourself some slack. You're human. <laughs> Your brain is a human brain. Keep on doing what needs to be done. I don't think you should cut yourself off from being a parent. You know, start to neglect and just order pizza all day long instead of cooking or, I don't know, not being there for your children, okay? But at the beginning, cut yourself some slack. Keep doing what needs to be done. But don't expect yourself to do too much, and, and you need to do things in order to, to let your mind find the, 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 the space and the time to open up in whatever ways. So, you know, do what you need to take care of yourself. And that brings me to the second point, which, which during stressful times, it's really hard to take care of yourself. And I really think that taking care of yourself is one of the most important things that you can do as, as a human being, but especially as a parent, because this is something we do not only for our own personal sake or indulgement. We do this for our children. Taking care of yourself might mean different things for different people. For, for, you know, for some, it means going out for a run every day. For others, taking the time to go out for drinks with their best friends every week, you know, leaving the children at home with their spouse. That goes a long way for some people. For me, a daily practice of short yoga in the morning and some meditation during the day is very helpful for maintaining my own focus and sanity. And I think all of those things can help you gain more psychological flexibility and feel better about yourself and be more open and present and patient with your children. And this is why those things are part of, of the mind pillar of the parenting map. But to be honest, in those stressful days, I, I just couldn't find it in me to practice my self-care habits. Every moment, I take some time, no more than 15 minutes, usually before everybody wakes up, to do some yoga, to energize me after waking up, to 
clear and focus my mind on the day ahead. And usually I find the time during the day, sometimes between sessions, sometimes before I go to bed, for at least 10 minutes of, of silent meditation. And as soon as the first siren blazed, all this went out the window. I didn't even be bother to drink a full cup of water as soon as I wake up like I usually do. Now, is that bad? No. Is that good? Also no. It is what it is. Okay? Habits come and go. And sometimes you fall off the wagon. And scary war sirens are a good reason for falling off the wagon, I think. But the, the, thing, the most important thing here is that, is that we have to be aware of that. You have to notice that it, it's happening and you have to take care to reinstate your self-care habits as soon as possible because they do take care of you. You have them for a reason. Now, if they don't work for you, try something else. If you tried yoga every day and it doesn't help you, don't bother find something else. You know, going out for drinks with friends isn't a thing for me. I wouldn't focus on that, okay? But other things are helping me. So you have to find what is working for you. And then when you fall off the wagon, you have to notice that you did. And think about why. Because if you fall off the wagon because you don't enjoy that and it doesn't help you, that's one thing. But if you fall off the wagon because the environment doesn't help you because there's too much stress at the moment and you're mind is occupied on, on the recent diagnosis that you received or something like that, maybe you need to find a way to go back to those self-care helpful habits, okay? And at the time of recording this episode, it's uh, two days since the ceasefire, and only today I came back to my usual regular practice of doing yoga in the morning. So that is that. Now, one thing that I have noticed is how we all deal with stress differently. And that's actually a good thing. So in the first couple of days after the siren started and we were thrown into this reality of running into shelter and being afraid that it can happen at any moment and we, we change our sleeping arrangements so we can go into shelter quicker and, you know, life changed. <laughs> and we stopped taking baths. For example, we didn't want to be caught in the middle of, of a bath. Um, so, you know, we, we, we notice the stress all the time. And I noticed how different, how in, in, how differently my two kids were uh, adapting to the situation and dealing with their stress. So, for example, my my daughter, she's almost four years old. She uh, at the first day after it happened, in the middle of the day, she just fell asleep for a couple of hours, <laughs> just like that. She just put her head down and fell asleep for a couple of hours, which was, I think, her way of checking out. And it. It, it reminds me of a story about me. When I was seven years old, I took my first flight. Um, we were traveling to Europe, and I guess I was really afraid. And as soon as I sat in, in my seat on the airplane, before we even took off, I just put my head down, and I fell asleep, and I woke a couple of hours later when we landed. So it was mine and her way of checking out because when you sleep usually you don't notice the stress she also asked to move to a different apartment because you know she's four years old and she thinks that maybe moving apartments might mean no sirens so she was thinking about changing changing uh, um, the surroundings on the other hand her 
brother, almost eight years old now, he really distracted himself with screens, and something he enjoys anyway, but even more so. And he even made sure that he takes his Nintendo Switch to the shelter. So as soon as we were in there, he got it out and started playing. And I think it was his way of not thinking about the, the loud booms we were hearing overhead as missiles intercepted the rockets and everything was going on. And he also wanted to play a couple of times a game with me, which was a kind of an imagination game about a zombie apocalypse where um, he and I were roaming around the house searching for zombies and killing them. And that's his way of controlling the bad things, the bad, unexpected things. So you can really see how, how the mind of a child is trying to adapt to the situation. And, and I think as parents, we have to respect that. Because as I've said, I was in my tunnel vision of being really worried. I didn't want to play the zombie apocalypse game. But I realized, I, I tried, tried to see things from his point of view, and I realized that it is his way of trying to have some control on this crazy, crazy situation. And he needed me in there as well, as, as a grown-up, as the adult, as the taker, the caretaker, the caregiver, the, the safe haven. He really needed me in there. And we have to respect our each other's coping strategies and we have to respect um, how each one of us deals with stress and especially with our children we have to help them walk through that and in that sense we need to remind ourselves that the mind is really 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 powerful sometimes too powerful and the the power of imagination and the power of the mind is really powerful this is why I think we we have to sometimes really focus on how we think because how we think leads to how we feel and we can affect how we think. And I, I, some, I hear this a lot, especially from different life coaches, that when you have a bad thought, you just need to replace it with a good thought and you have to, you know, all this kind of affirmation stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not against that. I really like that, but I, I don't think it's a complete solution. But I think we have to start with noticing how our minds is affecting our body and our, our emotions. And there's a nice story that my wife told me, and I will adapt it just to tell you uh, the story as an example. So a friend of hers told her that her boy, I don't know what age he is, but it doesn't really matter. He was really afraid and he had a hard time falling asleep during those nights. And she didn't know what to do. She tried to calm him down with different methods. And he said that he really wants to take a sleeping pill to calm, to, to cool down and, and, and to fall asleep. And he's a child and she didn't want to give him a sleeping pill. So, um, but she said, okay, I will give you a sleeping pill. And she took a, a tablet of an artificial artificial sweetener um, that is sweet and it looks like a pill and she told him that this is a sleeping pill that sometimes she uses when she can't fall asleep and as soon as he's going to take it uh, he will feel sleepier and he will fall asleep and that's a boy for that who 
didn't sleep more than two hours for a couple of days. He took the pill, ten the, the pill, yeah, the, the artificial sweetener. Ten minutes later, he said, "Wow, this is really affecting me. I feel so sleepy," and he fell asleep for twelve hours. <laughs> so you see how how the mind is really powerful, and that's there's a very important lesson here. Because as parents, we really have to notice what we say and how we act and what we uh, project to the world in, in front of our children because they notice everything. And if, even if we, if we don't say that we are scared, even if we don't um, tell them all the time, whoa, I'm really scared or everything is horrible, but if we act like that, we are jumpy, we are, are aggressive, we are impatient, they catch up on that and it will affect their minds so that's why we need to notice and and even if we're scared from within we kind of need to do something to calm ourselves down so we can be more um we can be calmer with them okay and and use the power of the mind okay tell them what they need to hear sometimes i don't mean that we have to lie to them but we can sometimes refrain from telling all the truths which I, I, I see some parents here are having a hard time to do. And that means that we, we really need to kind of see things from their point of view. And you, have, you know, it, it differs from, every, from child to child because you know your child, you know what they think, you know what they like, you know what they, they are about. So try to adapt your words, your stories, your ways of being to them. So you can, you can help them de-stress and focus their minds of, on what really helps and not on all the scary things that is going on around them. And eventually, the, the last thing I want to focus on is our roles as parents in these situations, not only for our children, but for society and the world at large. Because... As I've called this section in my notes, if we, we want parent better, the world won't be better. Um, and, you know, as, as parents, I think this is, this is my way of looking at things. It's our role as parents to make this world better. Yeah, we can do it in different ways, such as taking care of the environment, maybe eating less meat, you know, do, doing volunteering work, whatever. But I'm talking about now about how we're going to change society together and create, hopefully, a better, more empathetic and more resilient society. Not only for me here in, in my city, in the middle of Israel, but for all of Israel and all of the people who live here, no matter what religion they are or where they live or what they think about me. I want to create a, a, a society that is, that is more empathetic toward each other and more resilient when people will fall less and less into the pitfalls of, of hate and anger and, and violence. Because I think one of the scariest things that happened here was not even related to the rockets being fired into into the country which was scary or not related to the airstrikes in Gaza which are horrible um, during all those 
11 days, we saw many cases of mobs roaming the streets and wreaking havoc. And that was right here in our own cities. And on both sides, mobs of either Jewish Israelis or um, Palestinians roaming the streets, usually young men, but probably not only young men. And they will hunting down and looking for members of the other group to attack. And you can count the incidents, I think, I don't know if on, on your fingers, but it's not like it happened all day long and all the time. But yeah, innocent people were dragged out of their cars, flagged out for being either Jewish or, or Muslim, you know, depends on which mob I'm talking about, and attacked. For example, in Acre, which is a city in northern Israel, which is usually a, a city that hosts both Arab and, and Israeli populations living together. Um, a Jewish teacher was pulled out of his car and was beaten severely, uh, needing a couple of surgeries after that. And at the same time, the same day, in, in a city that is really close to Tel Aviv, in the center of Israel, the same thing happened, okay, but the other way around, where a Jewish mob started to attack an Arab guy who was going down the street with his motorcycle. And incidentally, that was caught on live TV. And that was really scary to see. You, you're seeing right-wing extremists on both sides walking down the streets, vandalizing properties, burning down shops, burning down cars, and groups of mostly Jewish um, right-wing men attacking TV reporters. Jewish, by the way, not because they're Arabs. You know, TV reporters who were who doing their jobs, they were attacking them viciously because of a long-lasting incitement against the media uh, for doing its job. And the list really goes on and on. And sometimes the police not being present, sometimes the police is helpless. And, you know, my friend, that is really, really, really scary. And you just, you, you just can't help but notice a similar thread between most, if not all, of the members of these mobs. As I've said, usually young men, probably in their 20s. And yet, not, not everybody was a young male, but most of them, I think, were. And as a dad, and, a, and, and as a psychologist, I have to wonder... What the hell happened to them? Those young dudes looking for a fight in the streets, beating up innocent people, innocent helpless people. They used to be little boys. Yeah? They used to go to bed hugging a teddy bear at one time in their lives. They used to fear the darkness, I guess, some of them. They used to need a hug from their mom or dad. They didn't come into this world like that. So what happened? Why are they like that today? I know <laughs> the answer is too complex and big for this question, but we, we have to ask these questions. And I know that this is an oversimplification and people are much more complex than that. And you can't blame it all on the parents. But I must think about how the way they were parented influenced how they are today. And of course, I don't know how they were parented because I don't know them. I cannot diagnose those men or their parents in any way. 
But I want to say something more general about how we, as parents, can educate our children in a way that might prevent this from happening. That might make one of those men be in a situation like that, but step away. Seeing the other side, not as an enemy that you have to beat up, but as another human being that you might not agree with, but you don't, don't feel like beating him up to a pulp. I think in order to, for, for, to beat someone up like that, in order to treat someone like this piece of emotionless meat that you just need to ruin, you have to forego all of your empathy. You have to not care about what the other side is all about. You have to not care about that is, it's a human being. You, you have to not see him as a person at all. And I think a lack of empathy is one of the worst things that happened in our society in, I don't know if it's the last couple of decades or centuries, because, you know, it goes way, way, way back to when children were not regarded as human beings, but as workers or emotionless creatures. It goes back to when black people were hauled from Africa to the United States, to the Americas, to be slaves. It goes way back, way, way back. So it's, it's a, I guess it's kind of a flaw in the human programming. And social psychology can teach us a lot about groups treating each other. And, you know, I, I want to think about how we parents can do a better job of taking care of our children's emotional capacity and emotional worlds and teach them, teach them to feel and deal with all of their emotions. We need to help them pro process those emotions as the adults we are. And that's especially true for our boys because at least the way I see it, society, the society we live in is still being havoced by the patriarchy which does not only state that women might worth less than men or are more uh, weak than men, it also demands from men to act in a very specific, quote-unquote, manly kind of way, which leads to emotion uh, being suppressed and to the build-ups of aggression. And it leads to not seeing the other side. And there are many studies with babies and little toddlers that show that they have an empathy in them. They have the capacity to see the other side, to think about the other side, to feel what the other side is feeling, to care about that and to do something about that. But as we grow up, we sometimes throw it out the window or we use that empathy only to people who look like us. And sometimes not even that. Unfortunately, I don't have a real structured solution for that yet. But it is on my mind. And I really think that we should, you know, you and I, you listen to this podcast because you care about your parenting. We should try to be what I call the 21st century parents who are parents who care about each other and they care about the lives of others no matter who they are. And we care about the emotional worlds of our children and we want to see our children and other people's children thrive into positive, confident, productive adults. Adults who would like to live peacefully in a world that has enough struggles as it is without people 
and their fights adding to the mix. And I think it really star- starts with your own heart and mind, teaching your children to take care of themselves, not at the expense of other people, seeing other people, caring about other people. And it starts with them having the capacity to take care of themselves. When children are safe in their own emotional worlds, they don't have to hide their emotions. They don't have to hide their anger and their sadness and their fears and act like other things and act like they are not afraid, like they are manly or whatever. When they know they can always go to their parents and have a shoulder for whatever they need, they will develop their own containers for emotional mayhems, for emotional storms. And they will know how to hold it and how to take care of themselves. And they will be able to move it forward to other people in their vicinity as they grow up. They will know how to take care of themselves as well as others in their neighborhood, in their workspace, in their families. And that's the vision I think we should strive for, of people, children growing up to be caring adults who are not taking care of themselves at the expense of others, but taking them care of themselves as well as others. And, you know, needing to succumb to fights less and less and less. Sometimes you have to protect yourself. Yeah, that's right. But I can't stand to live in a world where groups of people can go around the street beating someone up just for doing his work as a journalist or just because he was walking down the street and looked differently. So, again, I don't have a solution. There is no ready-made solution. There are many things we can do. And I would love to hear what you think about that. I think it's a different episode than most, but it's a different situation than most. And I would love to know what you think about that. So you can reach out to me either on Instagram at ApparentlyParent or just go to ApparentlyParent.com forward slash contact and send me a message over there. I would really love to hear your ideas and your thoughts. And with that, I think it's time to close up this um, episode. And I wish you all (laughs) a very, very happy week and month and year, wherever you are. And, you know, peace in our time. (laughs) And as always, if you have enjoyed this episode, if you could take something out of this episode for your own benefit, I would appreciate that if you would go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and rate and review this episode and this podcast so that I can uh, find my way into more ears, into more parents who want to be 21st century parents, who want to move away from being stuck, conflicted and, 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 you know, exhausted parents and that really helps when you re- you do that when you put your reviews up you can write whatever you want it really helps me to define what this podcast is all about and if you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast you can do so wherever you like to listen to your podcast on and do so so you will not miss the episodes as they come out every week and stay tuned for the next episode episode number 56 it's going to be where I'm having a recurring guest. One of my favorite guests on the show is coming back and you will know about it 
next week. Until then, have a wonderful, wonderful life.